HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cooking Issues is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that has been offering organic stone ground products for decades. Their flours and whole grains are the highest quality and are minimally processed at their stone mill in Oregon. Visit bobsredmill.com to shop their huge range of products. Use Cooking Issues 25 for 25% off your order. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, you know, I don't know, like 12.15, something, I don't know, like 1 o'clock, from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez and Matt in the booth. How you doing, Matt? Uh, I'm doing great. Yeah? How you doing, Nastasia? Good. Yeah? Everything for real? Good? Mm-hmm. Yeah? So Nastasia and I did an event at uh, Cesare's Farm at the Center for Discovery on... I had to bring Dave a toothbrush. Yes. What day of the week was that? I pounded so much coffee on the way up. I'm like, I'm on this train. You made me get on this train way early. Bring me a toothbrush. Tell them about how you accidentally bring the wrong toothpaste. Well, it's not the wrong toothpaste. It's not to- like so. When I travel, I try to like, I try to you know bring the the what's it called travel, the travel size. size stuff with me, and so you know like. Travel size toothpaste isn't in our normal medicine cabinet where the toothpaste is, because why would it be there? I'm not traveling out of my medicine cabinet. You know what I'm saying? So we have this like bucket full of stuff, and I'm always like, oh, they, it's like you know, it's always like you know, zero. Right, cream. Whatever, whatever it happens to be, Lamis, something horrible, and like it's some horrible thing, and it ends up like it's like oh, there's the travel toothpaste, and you, you throw it in, and you take it with you, and you never notice until like that night. 
you know, or whatever, and you you put it on the toothbrush, and you're like, that does not look like toothpaste. It's very a couple of times I have almost gotten it. I've actually had a situation where that like whatever product it is has actually reached my lips, <laughs> and my my mind only at that split last second processes. That didn't look right. <laughs> and you pull it away and you're like, oh, hey, whoa, whoa. hey. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't be the only person that this happens to. It has not happened to me. Matt? You know, now that you've inspired such confidence, you already have someone with a question for you on the air. <laughs> really? All right. Call her. You're on the air. Hi, this is Jeff from Los Angeles. How you doing? Uh, good. How about yourself? Doing well. Great. So, quick question for you. I have the older champion centrifuge. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Champion made a centrifuge? Oh, Just champion. Uh, the, cha- the, 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 the blood centrifuge, not champion juicer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The champion, uh, whatever it is, 03. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got you, got you. And so, I have the spins all too, but I have the old one. Mm. And wanted to know if I could use that centrifuge to reduce. To basically get yeast for beer. So in other words, after the fermentation's done, what layers would I harvest in order to get the yeast if I was going to use that? Right. I've never done it, but the Champion actually is probably pretty good for that because it's a pelleting fuge. And so um, I would guess that, you know, uh, you'd get like the large amount of... I've never done it, but I mean, my guess is is that you would um, just take the stuff spin it, they take the solids, resuspend it in some uh, fluid, let it like live for a while, then spin out the deads again, and then it sh- you should have an, an active thing. This is a thing that's knowable though. I just don't happen to know it off the top of my head. I researched it once, but uh, for this, you definitely want a pelleting fuge. Like, um, I mean, the Spinzol would work for it if, for larger quantities, but if you're only looking to get small quantities, I would say that that champion probably does a good job. And um, the question is, are you spinning out the live stuff and the dead stuff? That's why I would, I would pellet it and then get that pellet a couple of times and like build it a couple of times. Then eventually the pellet should be more healthy. I think what you want is the pellet because I don't believe the yeast is going to be um, – I don't think it's going to be in solution. I think it will pellet out. Um, Think. Well, pulling along some dead yeast shouldn't be a problem anyway. It just provides nutrients for the living yeast. So. Well, it depends on how much, though, right? Sure. I mean, that's why what I would do is, is like, assuming that you're harvesting from an exhausted system, right? You got a, like, right. a, a lot of deads, a lot of a lot of auto, uh, you know, autolyzed yeast stuff in there, which again, not terrible in in smaller quantities, but like not a lot of nutrients left. If you want mainly healthy stuff, I would take the pellet and then, uh, I mean, you could probably, if let's say you're in a cloudy environment, I'd throw away the stuff at the bottom because that's almost all dead stuff, right? Then I would spin out the, the cloudy liquid and then boom, that pellet has, still has a lot of dead stuff in it. I'd grow it once more and spin it and then you have deads plus a lot of lives, I'd bet. If you want it healthy right away. If you're going to rebuild it, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Make sense? Okay. I mean, I'm sure Thank someone you. on the chat room has, uh, has something to say about this, which, by the way, Matt, is a question somebody had. The question they had was, uh, this is from uh, Kieran, can I get a link to the Cooking Issues chat room? I Google it every once in a while, but only the dead links from the blog appear. My Google Kung Fu is pretty strong, but I'm not even sure 
if this is a cooking issues thing, a heritage radio thing, or some other third party. So where do they get to this? Yes, so I have told uh, Kieran, but I will tell everyone what I told him. So it's actually a Mixler thing. Mixler, M-I-X-L-R, is what we um, use to live stream. And so you would go on there and uh, follow Heritage Radio Network, and that is how you get to the chat room. So, so you can't, is this something that can be searched after the fact? I would think that searching for this via the Googles would be very difficult. Jeez. Then why do we? Why don't we use something that's easier to search? I mean, if the uh, idea is to let people chat and therefore get new information and or search old information. I think what would make sense would be including very obvious links to this at various places, like on the website for the show. Okay. And are, are they a competitor to Google? Yeah. Why is Google so bad at finding it? I don't know. I haven't tried it. Only he has. I've had a number of people ask how the hell they get to it, though. It seems like we're hiding this information for some strange reason, as though we are trying to prevent people from getting to it, which is not the case as far as I know. Right, we, we like it to be a secret club. Uh, <laughs> oh, jeez. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, hopefully that helps. Let us know. Tell us about your yeast, your yeast experiences. Um, so, yeah, so Nastasia and I did uh, an event at the Center for Discovery Farm, which was good. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, by the way, people, our 10-year anniversary. For those of you listening to the show, you know that Nastasia and I fear-bonded fear out of having to share a ride where we were being driven around by a rabid anti-Semite. For those of you that listened to the show, you will remember that. And so, like, that kind of... He was there. He was there. We saw him. And I was like, oh, my God, anti-Semite. <laughs> but I kind of said that to Nastasia. I was like, over there. Here he is. Uh, but, uh, yeah. We also heard a good comeback to a joke, but we can't tell I it. cannot tell this joke. It is not safe for work. But it was the best comeback <laughs> to a joke. Yeah. That I've heard in a while. I've heard in a long, long time. Yeah. Especially, like, it wasn't, like, written out of a show or something. Yeah. It was just, like, a live comeback. And it's not the kind of thing... So, like, you know, you know how, like, I mean, I don't know you because you can you're... come to the bar and hear... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who you are, but, you know, you probably have stored up somewhere, like, a list of, like, 20 or 30 comebacks. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, ready to come back at somebody, you know, no, you are, stuff like that. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's like, this comeback had to have been, <laughs> boom, right off the cuff. Like, it could not have been pre-constructed, which made it even better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then... The day after that, we had the Star Chefs opening uh, party that Nastasia did not do. I did with the bar where we served waffle turkey, but it was not wild turkey that was our sponsor, so we did it with Buffalo Trace, which means mm. it was it was waffalo. Oh, that's waffalo. good. Uh, and then uh, that went fine, so Star Chefs is going on. Now, I haven't been yet, but for those of you that want to go off to the Star Chefs, go check out the Star Chefs. Where is it, Nastasia? Greenpoint. Greenpoint. It's called the Brooklyn what? Expo Center. Brooklyn Expo Center. And then I feel like I have another event. You did a thing yesterday, last night. Taste oh, we had Taste of New York for City Harvest. What is it? Just one freaking event after it's another? season. We did, uh, we did Don Lee's uh, Joy of Mango drink there for Existing Conditions Bar. And then I have an event also tomorrow. Where? We're doing a museum of food and drink. But oh, I, right. it's a fundraiser, but I believe it's a closed fundraiser. I don't believe we could, we're selling tickets to it. Why can't I go? Who said you couldn't go to it? We could talk about did, it. Did you ask someone at the museum and they're like, not for you? No, I didn't ask. But if you're doing whatever, we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. People, I mean, maybe they care, but they're not going to hear. Yeah. Just like they're not going to hear what that joke was. Yeah. But it was good. And I have to say, it was a joke that 
was very quick to deliver and the comeback was very it wasn't like this guy was like oh I could see this punchline coming yeah yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. I'm gonna like yeah 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 <laughs> John Arnold, no relation as far as I know to me, writes in, My name is John Arnold. I discovered your work through Kenji Lopez-Alt and have recently benefited greatly from the very thorough and detailed information you posted on cast iron pans and seasoning. I don't know if you take questions via email. Nope. <laughs> it went to Nastasian, so I saw it here. Uh, but I thought I'd reach out to you to see if you do. I have three uh, vintage Griswold pans. These are cast iron pans, people. I have some Griswolds. I like them. For those of you that don't know, the difference between, like, uh, most modern... There are some modern people who are doing it, but, like, the the most standard cast iron pan you buy now from Lodge, right, is not what we call polished. And so it's not polished in the sense of mere polish. What it means is when you when you make a, a pan, like, I'm pretty sure this is still how they do it, but back in the day... You ever do sand casting, Nastasia? No. No? So what you do is you have, uh, like, a wooden mold, let's say, of the pan. It's all, like, waxed and pretty mold of the pan. And you make an impression in green. It's called green. It's not really green. But it's called green sand. It's, like, like damp-ish sand that takes the impression of the pan, right? Then you lift up the mold. You lift up the thing. You take out your, your you know, your, your wooden, you know, model of it. And you put it back together, and then you pour the, the, the molten metal into that. So, like, anyone who's taken like casting or shop in high school has like done this typically with aluminum. So it's sand casting. Now, the, and you can always recognize something that's been, and they, they can make giant parts with sand casting. This is the way, you know, giant things used to be made back in the day. You can always recognize a sand casting because it's bumpy. So uh, Nastasia, you've seen castings that are like a little bit bumpy, yeah. right? They're like a little bit bumpy. That's the actual, you're seeing the actual sand. You're seeing like the, the impression of the stuff in the mold. So this is the way cast iron pans are made or were made. I think they're still made this way. So what a lot of old time companies did was they would take an abrasive and they just, you know, smooth out that bumpiness on the bottom of the pan. It was called a polished pan. Now, it so happens that those pans season a lot better and become a lot slicker and smoother. Eventually, a modern non-polished pan will get a nice non-stick surface, but it's always a little bit bumpy, and I prefer the old polished pans. Uh, and I have some old Griswolds that are polished. So anyway, so if I happen to mention it, which I might not even mention, who knows? So I went through that whole explanation for nothing, whatever. Stasi's like, I hate you, I hate you, Dave. I wish I hadn't been working for 10 years, 10 years with you. 10 years I've been working with you. Worst. That was, this was the actual, Nastasia tricked me into buying champagne for a theoretical 10-year anniversary of working together uh, like a month ago, when in fact it was just now that it was 10 years. No, it wasn't, so Dave. a liar. No, because they did the event earlier. No, it's always in the fall. It's always no, in the freaking they, fall. They... That's why there's always freaking pumpkins and stuff there. No, I swear to you, I have the email. I don't know. We can have champagne listen, again. Listen, listen, listen. I don't know. Again. I don't know if you we can know go this. The room again. I don't know. No, I don't know if you know this. Nastasia is an inveterate liar. That's not true. The Rainbow Room has this weird thing where they have, they have certain champagnes and sparkling wines that they'll pour into a cocktail, but they will not serve you a bottle of that because they're like any a hole that's going to buy a bottle here is going to spend more money. True or false? We've we saw their cocktail list, and we could see what they were pouring into their sparkling cocktails. Oh, yeah, they had a crappier. They had a crappier, and we're like, we don't deserve the one that's spending a lot of money. Can't you just give us a bottle of the crappy yeah. one? And they're like, nah. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the cast iron pans. 
Uh, I have three Griswold, vintage Griswold pans, but one of them is baffling me a little bit. The seasoning seems to be very dark in some areas and light or more or less missing in others. I've used it around 40 times and seasoned it after each use by heating on the stovetop with canola oil until the surface temperature is close to 500 degrees. Ah, uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, my other pans are very uniform, but this one has not gotten there yet. I've attached a, uh, an image of the perplexing pan. Does this look like I should take it down to the metal with steel wool or just continue to season and hopefully it gets more uniformly seasoned over the entire surface? Um, so I'm looking at uh, John's pan here. And for those of you that don't know, I'm sure that you've seen this before on your pans. Um, on the bottom of it, it's black, which is good. And then there are areas that have a little bit of a light, uh, kind of almost reddish, like almost like you think it's rust, but it does not look like rust. So this could be a number of things, right? This could be that there are some spots that are only getting partially polymerized um, oils on them. It could be some marginal sticking of the stuff. I would not bother uh, like going through the full seasoning over time. But the main question is this, is the pan sticking? If you're having sticking problems with the pan, then I'd start worrying about it. If it's not sticking, right, then what it looks to me like is you have high spots and those high spots are getting hit by um, your spatula or whatever else you're using. And it's creating those marks by like scraping partially polymerized oil on top. If that's the case, I just give it a hit underwater with a scrubby, like normal, uh, you know, a normal like Scotch-Brite scrubby after uh, each use and see whether it just gets better if you just don't worry about it so much. If it's sticking, you might have to do something more aggressive, but it's hard to tell from the picture. I would guess that it's not sticking too badly and that when you're using it, it's just going to kind of get better and better as those spots get worn away. Don't be afraid of using metal implements. Don't be afraid of using like a Scotch-Brite uh, pad on it. Uh, you know, just don't leave it wet. Uh, that's the one thing I never do. I never leave my cast iron wet. I scrub it and then I throw it back on the stove for like 10 to 15 seconds just to heat it up long enough to blast the water off of it. Yeah? Okay. Nastasi's like, don't care. Um, all right. Serena writes in. Serena, uh, first and foremost, thanks for doing your show. I'm a food process engineer, and your podcast has made me remarkably better at my job and has helped me maintain my interest in my line of work. Well, that's nice to hear. It's nice. Stasi's like, yeah, nice. No, I mean, it's nice no, to hear. I know. Yeah. It's nice. You're being sincere for once? For once. Yeah. Did, I, did I tell you people that uh, how many... I can't ask you because you can't answer me. It's freaking internet. Jeez, moron. Oh, you know... You how many of you have seen Monster Inc., though? How many? My son, for those of you that have seen Monsters, Inc., my son calls Nastasia Roz. And Roz is the character who ends up turns. Uh, should I spoil it for them? Sure. I don't think I spoil it. Anyway, there's a twist at the end about Roz. I don't know the twist. Well, I won't spoil it. Anyway, he goes, Do you have. She. Do you have your paperwork, Wazowski? Like that. And so, like, she's like the boss, like the administrative I boss. I am Booker's boss and yeah. friend. Yeah. But in terms of the boss, uh, Booker started calling her Roz. Mm -hmm. Do you have your paperwork, Booker? <laughs> You'd say that to him all the time? Yes. Did you clean the trash, Booker? <laughs> anyway, so like, wait, what were you going to say, though? Oh, no. It was about the fundraiser tomorrow. Oh. oh. <laughs> but why are you talking about it? You said don't talk about it. And then you bring it up anyway. You're just going to, oh, just I know why. Because that. you know that we can invite people to it and you want to rub it in their noses. We can invite people? No, we cannot. No, 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 no. I was going to say that that I know a good fundraiser for it that we had talked about before. For it meaning the museum? Yeah. 
Okay. Just remind me later. Okay. All right. Because our listeners would like it. Why why don't you just tell them? Because I can't, because I don't really want it, because it includes me. Think about it. Oh, jeez. Well, it's a long, drawn-out thing. You know what it is? You're talking about, like, dinner? Yeah. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to ask. I'm (laughs) going to ask whether people think it would be something that people would pay for. No, 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 no. Let's not. I don't want to talk about it right now. All right. Jeez. (laughs) You brought it up. I know. Let's not forget, people. Nastasia brought it up. All right. Now, on to Serena's question. Uh, Or, as she puts it, into the meat and potatoes of her question. I'm getting married in a week. Congratulations. Uh, Week and a half. Still, congratulations. That's very close. I'm getting married in a week and a half, and I want to make... What? It depends on when she sent the question. She She was married months ago. Yeah, because we haven't been on in two weeks. No, we were on... What's her name? Serena. Do you not read these questions as they come in? (laughs) I hope they... I mean... If you had been married, I hope that you're doing well. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> but this was sent on October fifteenth, so she's getting oh, married she's today. Getting married. Oh, here, hurry up, here. Wait, All right. not today, Dave. A week and a half. What's a week and a half from October fifteenth? If you don't answer this question right now, 19, her marriage 19, might fall apart. 23, 24, 25. Oh, this weekend. Okay, 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 hey, Serena, <laughs> I got you. Here it is. Uh, I'm getting married, like, right now! Uh, and I want to make homemade caramel sauce as a wedding favor for my 15 guests. Okay. What can I do to either process or, uh, what can I do either process or formula-wise to make it fridge-stable for a hella long time? Must be, like, a West Coast, nor- like, a Northwest. Hella long time, or even shelf-stable. Thanks in advance. Uh, sincerely, Serena. Uh, and she, okay, she uses a recipe, uh, the caramel sauce from the sticky toffee cake that Rachel Ray does. Recipe in a minute, I'll give it to you. And uh, then she adds a postscript. Uh, my mom keeps it in the pantry whenever I make it for her, but she lives by Filipino mom food safety rules, i.e. keep it on the counter until it looks weird. I don't want to accidentally make my whole wedding party sick, so I'm seeking your advice. Okay, first of all, I see how you are different from Nastasia in that there is nothing Nastasia would like more than to make her entire wedding party sick as long as she was in on the joke. Let's not forget that Nastasia is the person who served sunchokes to people in massive quantities to give them GI upset while she was like, I'm not hungry. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true story. Uh, but we're not here to talk about inulin. So here's the recipe. Let's take a look at it, Serena. In a small, heavy saucepan, bring one cup granulated sugar and three tablespoons of cold water to a boil without disturbing. Boil until the mixture begins to turn amber about five minutes. All right, so the heavy saucepan here obviously is to prevent scorching. The three tablespoons of uh, cold water is just to get everything liquid before it scorches on the bottom. Uh, and you're turning it amber. And what that means is the vast majority of those three tablespoons of water is gone. Since uh, a cup of sugar weighs, uh, just remember here, a cup of granulated sugar weighs within 10 to 15%, depending on the exact grind you're using, within 10 to 15%, the same as the exact uh, cup measurement of um, water. Okay, so just keep that in mind. We got one cup of sugar, you added three tablespoons of water, almost all of that stuff's gone because you boiled it until it was amber, all right? So you have a very high sugar substance here. Swirl the pot, and when the color, and the reason they say without disturbing is they don't want to get uh, crystallization on the side. So if you overly disturb something, you can get some uh, flex on the side of your pan, it will recrystallize. That recrystallized stuff will crystallize the whole batch. If you get crystals in, Christmas is ruined, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you don't have to worry, I don't think, about massive crystallization afterwards because of what's about to happen. 
Swirl the pot, and when the color is deep amber removed from the heat, stir in the remaining two tablespoons of butter, right? So it's gonna foam off the liquid in the butter, blah, blah, blah. It's gonna get the, the oil in. Then stir in two thirds of a cup of cream and stir over low heat till smooth. Stir in the remaining quarter teaspoon salt. So what do we have here? We have two thirds of a cup of cream, a third of which is, uh, a third of which is fat, roughly a third of which, and the other uh, two-thirds of that are, um, you know, fundamentally milk slash liquid. So you're looking at one cup of sugar to about, give or take, half cup of water plus, you know, the balance of that two-thirds of a cup in fat plus a two tablespoons of butter. So you're looking at a two-to-one simple syrup or something that's very close in sugar to maple syrup. Now, if you do it right, you shouldn't have too much risk of massive amounts of crystallization because it's not much higher than uh, 66 bricks, if it's higher than 66 bricks at all, but it's also probably not that much less than that. So the only real microbiological problems you're gonna have with this. Now, if the product stays good, i.e., if it does not, um, if it does not uh, crystallize, like you're not getting weird lactose crystals coming out of it, or it's not forming weird little uh, chunks or milk solid things, whatever you get out of it, as long as it's structurally stable, right? And by the way, it could separate a little bit. So like I make a cream syrup much the same way as this, but with no heat, we make a cream syrup and it separates, right? But then you can put it back together. It doesn't get granular. The texture of it doesn't go bad. Uh, the main danger you have to this product is yeast, right? So I don't, you're not going to get any kind of pathogens growing in something with that high of a sugar content. So what I would do is I would put them into jars and then I would put the jars in a water bath and I would bring that water bath and you're not like canning to kill bacteria. You're just, uh, pasteurizing it to kill yeast. Like yeast is your main enemy here. I mean, maybe there's something that grows in there, but I highly doubt it. I've never heard. For instance, like if you have maple syrup and you open maple syrup and then you put your maple syrup on your shelf, right? Then you have the chance of getting a disgusting mold on the top of your maple syrup. Did that ever happen to you, Stas? Uh, no. Oh, it's gross. Like mold slash yeast. It's, it's disgusting. No, 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 it's no, no. disgusting. So if you're not going to use your maple syrup uh, very often, it's a good idea to, uh, if you buy large quantities of maple syrup, which is always cost effective, uh, remember that it's already been a heated product, so you're not hurting anything by heating it. Uh, you could put them into smaller mason jars, close them, and then kind of uh, you know, bo you know, boil, the, boil the water around them. And as long as it gets up to the temperature that's going to kill all of the kind of yeast and mold in it, then you're good, and then it's not going to go bad forever, fundamentally. Uh, and so I would say the same kind of rule happens here. I would say a very light... Um, you know, seal in a, in, a, in a mason jar or even like pour it hot into a mason jar and then seal it and then immerse it in, in you know, simmering water for a little while because I have to look up the temperature to kill yeast and mold, but it ain't that high. And remember, you're starting with something that was, you know, kind of on the warm side anyway. So I would not worry about damaging uh, your guests because of the incredibly high sugar content of that product. Does that make sense to us? Yes. Yeah. And good luck with the, with the marriage. Um... I mean, not good luck, like, good luck with that. But I mean, like, you know, have fun. My experience with getting married, I've only done it once and only hope to ever do it You've once. You've talked about it before. What? It was more emotional than you thought it would be. He cried. What? It sounds like he's just a terrible person. My experience is, is that you're in a good journey. 
You know what I mean? I it's going to be a good journey. I can't possibly bring your mumbles up to an audible uh, volume. She's, <laughs> look, Nastasia, here's some things Nastasia hates. Uh, people who have, like, kind, loving relationships. <laughs> Not true. And people with children or who like their children. That These are the things that Nastasia hates. True. Beta males, beta males. Don't beta forget beta males. males. Yeah, people are you know why? But, but her definition of beta male is someone in a kind, loving relationship <laughs> yes. who cares about I their have children. I wondered. Yeah, that's how she defines it. I yeah. just don't like doormats. And by doormat, she means someone who doesn't say, <laughs> F you, I'm not taking care of those kids that I spawned. That's not true. <laughs> no. Yeah, true, true. Nastasia turns out hates women. <laughs> what? <laughs> Let's d- delete that from this. That's no, no, terrible. no. That's the show title. <laughs> <laughs> Break time. What's the female equivalent of uh, of an alpha versus beta? But you don't Same. like. You, but you don't like alpha female. You don't. Beta but you female. don't like alpha males. I do like alpha. Whenever males. you see someone that I would consider an alpha male, what you say is douche, 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 douche. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, you, you, you turn on the balance. repeat douche stutter. There's a, there's, a, there's a middle path that she's promoting. Yes. yes. She, so he, she likes a guy that's kind of a douche, like that. No, but like, no, not douche at all. Soft spoken douche. <laughs> soft spoken douche, like that. Like, what, who do you like? He does doesn't like douchebags. Which is how I define alpha male. No, not every alpha male is a douchebag, though. Oh, yeah? Okay. All right. Look forward to more explanation, explorations of this topic on yeah. future cooking issues. Yeah, yeah. You know, we got a comment in on the thing. Someone was like, yo, Nastasia, keep after them beta meals. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. I really don't know what that means. All right, Caesar writes in. Wait, we were taking a break. Oh, we're taking a break? Right back with more cooking issues. bring you our Bob's Red Mill Food Fact of the Week. Cornstarch is a dense powder made from the endosperm portion of the corn kernel. First of all, I would bet that Nastasia hates the word endosperm. Right. Cornstarch isn't really dense. I think of it as kind of a slippery feel uh, powder. Uh, I like it. Uh, what do I use cornstarch for mainly? Let's say you have AP flour and you want to knock down the protein level in AP flour. Let's say you're making cookies, you're worried the cookies are going to be tough. Or you're making pancakes, you're worried the pancakes are going to be tough. Anything where you're using a flour and you don't have a very low protein flour to use, add a little cornstarch, up to about 10% of the weight of the flour in cornstarch, and you'll soften the flour up. It's not the same as having a completely soft flour like you would a cake flour, but it goes a long way towards reducing the tendency of those flours to get tough in in, uh, baked things. Thanks to Bob's Red Mill for supporting cooking issues. Visit bobsredmill.com to shop their huge range of products. Use Cooking Issues 25 for 25% off your order. That's Cooking Issues 25, no spaces, 25 is a number. We are back. We are now joined in the studio by Kat from the home office at Heritage Radio Networks. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Dave? Doing all right. Nastasia. Right. Good. Uh, presumably, you do not hate women, Kat. Uh, I don't. I don't. Neither do I, which is uh-huh. something we haven't done. Do you, do, do you, someone who says they don't like beta males, that's isn't, what, that, not... isn't that basically some sort of like 
crypto anti-woman no. comment. What, is a, what do you find as a beta male? <clears throat> what does that mean? I think there has to be a balance in a relationship where, like, if somebody cooks, somebody cleans, right? Okay. And then we have a lot of beta males who are like, I'll cook and I'll not buy the equipment that I want and I'll wash the dishes and I'll, okay, we won't have sex tonight. Like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so you're saying that, she's callers that she just said an intensely anti woman thing there. What? What did I walk in on? <laughs> What this is just, this is just that's every anti, day. That's anti-beta male. I don't understand what this has to do so with you're women. Saying I that, feel bad for the women. So what you're saying is, is that if she, what I just heard you say was, if she doesn't want to do it tonight, and he's like, okay, I want to do it tonight, that that somehow is anti, that's good? Like, that means bad for him to be like, you don't feel like doing anything tonight? That's a bad no, thing? No, I'm saying he, he's doing all this stuff, but for what? Like cooking? What? Like cooking and... <laughs> And cleaning and not buying the equipment he wants. Like, a lot of our guys are like, she won't let me have anything. Oh, gosh. I mean, is this Dossi just working on alienating the entire cooking issue? I think base? so. Is that the goal? I think they so. They still have Dave. <laughs> I think I think Nastasia should have her own Savage Love-esque spin-off podcast. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm clearly am not qualified to be on that podcast, so, you know. You could call in. I'll call in. <laughs> So, uh, wow, that's just yeah. I don't know where to, I don't know where to start with that one. I don't know where to start. So why don't we talk about something else? You had uh, you were here to talk about the Heritage Radio fundraiser. Are we going to do this? Yeah. Talk, so talk um, on Monday, December third, we're hosting our second annual Winter in the Garden Part Two. Why do I want to spend winter in a garden in um, New York City? I mean, this is not Miami. Well, because we're, it's going to be in the Palm House at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Oh, it's so nice it's there. it's inside. Yeah. It's a beautiful glass house. Uh-huh. Like. Over by all the conservatory. Is that the right word? Area uh, in the garden? I guess, yeah. Cons- it's con- I don't know. So they keep it like, don't worry. It's climate Here, control. Here's the best thing about, how many of you out there, show of hands, don't worry, I can't see you. How many of you have been in the dead of winter to a botanical garden? I have. Dave has. You know what the most, I have. You know what the most fun is? Having your heavy winter coat on and then walking into where they're growing palm trees in a jungle sweat box. Dave, have you been to the... <laughs> Have you been to the the bonsai room at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden? Uh, Probably. I do like bonsais, and I have been to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, so I don't specifically remember it, but yes. It's pretty cool. We're Fingers crossed we're going to be able to do something in there. Listen. That's all I can say. Do not put your cocktail on top of the bonsai. No. Never do that. No. You you know what's a lot of fun? Uh, So I had... I, I was one of those kids in the, I guess this is mid-80s, who bonsais were like, be, started becoming a, like a big thing in sometime in the 80s. There was like a, pu- a bonsai push. And that's why everyone started selling. It was always those junipers. It was always those little junipers because they could look older and the leaves are so tiny that, you know, it was all, so people would sell, unscrupulous bonsai salespeople would sell these things. And then what would happen is, is they'd all be infested with spider mites. And you'd have them for a couple of years, and then it would be an explosion of red spider mites. Oh, I hate Bear, those. Right? Yikes. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind, these are indoor plants as far as you're concerned, because it's a bonsai. So where the freak are these spider mites coming from? So it had to show up from them. Nastasia's mom once sent a, a mighty batch. We've said it was this spider, before on the air. spider mites. A yeah. mighty batch of tomato plants wrapped in newspaper that somehow made the transcontinental crossing uh, to Anastasia via UPS, 
and she planted them in her garden community and those garden. in her community garden in New York City. Everyone's crops. Yeah, and those 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 like <laughs> hale and hearty outdoorsy type California mites just freaking wiped out everybody. Nastasia's plants fine because it's like I grew up in California. I could take this, and like all the New York City plants were like, oh, oh, Help. yeah, yeah. What so have anyway, you done? So anyway, so like I was warded. I, I kind of like was shied away from bonsais after the traumatic red spider mite explosion that happened in my house when I was a kid. I used to growing up associate bonsai trees with the beach because growing up in Alabama we would drive down to Panama City Beach, Florida and there was on the way back a bonsai tree store. Oh nice. In Florida. And so I was like, bonsai trees are Floridian, right? <laughs> They're so not a way to piss off a bonsai person is to walk up to the person and be like, yo, how old's that bonsai? They're like they're like, it's not about how old the bonsai is. It's the shape. It's the shape and how it's been trained. You know can what I mean? I, and you're I, like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Can I give you how the, old is it? Can I give you the definition of a beta male in the Urban Dictionary? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. Paragon of accuracy, Urban Dictionary, where literally any Tom, Dick, or beta male can go add any, <laughs> any definition they so choose. A beta male would never do that, and you know it. <laughs> Okay, it's an unremarkable, careful man who avoids risk and confrontation. Beta males lack the physical presence, charisma, and confidence of the alpha male. Yeah, and so I think, but I think what you're doing is trying to reinforce what I think are toxic masculine stereotypes, which reinforcing toxic toxic masculine stereotypes no, I'm is not, anti-woman. No, no, I think you're taking it too I, far. I'm just saying. I'm taking it less than one logical step. I didn't realize you guys had this kind of deep conversation on cooking issues. Oh, yes. Issues. It's more... Well, right, hold up, hold up, when hold up. Dave tells stories about his life... Oh, hold I gotta, I gotta... Wait, 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 stop. I gotta answer a question, and then you stick around, Kat, because... Oh, we never even said about the thing. Oh, yes. garden. All right, go, go, go. Okay, so it's at December 3rd at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, Palm House, and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Tickets are on sale now. Go to our Facebook page. How much they cost? Um, they are $135 for general admission and $225 <laughs> for VIP. And what do you get for general admission? By the way, I hate VIP sections. Why? Because it's always what the worst kind of people VIP? that are there. We had really fun people at our VIP. All right. What do you get for it? Um, so we're gonna, I like general admission people better. It's a taste-around event, so we're going to have 13 to 15 chefs from New York and a couple from out of town um, making all different kinds of food. We're going to have uh, Dave's going to have existing conditions team there. We're going to have Souther Teague, Damon Bolte doing cocktails. We're going to have beer, cider, wine. What kind of cider? Um Hopefully Shaxbury. We had Shaxbury last year. We love those guys. You so. get that crazy Mazer. Mazer? What's the, that? The Mead dude from Enlightenment. Ooh. Oh, we haven't even thought about Mead. Now you have something else for me to work on. Um, and then, yeah, so we're going to do some past food, some stations. Uh, we'll have a silent auction. Last year, one of the biggest hits of the event was our wine ring toss. We had a bunch of bottles of wine on the floor, and if you, you like, paid a small amount to like throw, toss a ring and if you rung a bottle of wine you got to keep it. And it was like one Petrus and a billion yellowtails? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <no. laughs> That's a really good game. Yeah. <laughs> That's That's- like another yellowtail. <laughs> yellowtail again? Just like when Phil comes over. Nastasia has like lays the case of yellowtail. Oh my god, Nastasia! No, Nastasia has like a bookcase constructed out of yellowtail bottles stacked because I her friends bring it. She won't friends. drink it. Yeah, yeah. nice. Cheap friends, cheap friends. Um, yeah, so go get tickets. 
It'll be All fun. Right. Now stick around because you want to talk about something else, but i got to answer this question okay. before they rip us off the air. Caesar writes in, if you're still keeping records, I'm 29, male and single, trying to make all of my kitchen gadget purchases as intelligently as possible. Don't have need for a Spinzol yet. So, Nastasia, you got to sell this. you got to sell Caesar <laughs> on a Spinzol. That's your next job. Mm-hmm. If you don't buy a Spinzol, you must be a beta male. Well, no, he needs to buy it now before he gets married, right? No! Why? Because who says maybe his... He's our listener. Nastasia disrespecting it's everyone. Disrespects, we, but then owns them. We know there are audience. listeners. Yeah. All right, whatever. Do you know how many beta males have called in to complain about you? <laughs> they, they Zero. Never <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, I was hoping you could talk about coffee roasting. Specifically, what coffee roaster do you use? Considerations when moving up to multi-kilo units, the roasting cycle, flavor development, smoking... Um, like meat and flavor infusing if you're feeling generous. I'm just getting into coffee roasting. I'm looking for a deep dive into the subject. I've done some wok roasting with mixed results and just purchased a a Genie Cafe coffee roaster as it seems to be the only one on the market that is intelligently designed for its size. I want to move up to an approximately two kilogram unit in the next five years if I end up loving it. Uh, Love the show, Caesar, uh, as in Julius. All right, so my, uh, my experience with coffee roast... Now remember, coffee is coffee is a subject that has been, and I've said this a million times, has been moving so radically over the past 10, 12 years that any knowledge that you have of um, something like coffee is like you could be completely up to date five years ago and then if you stop paying attention, you are, you are you now know nothing. Like that's how fast something that doesn't seem like maybe to an outsider, like there's that much to know, that's how fast things move. And coffee, and so I'm going to say that my roasting uh, knowledge is way out of date, and so like I can't give you uh, the the great news about it is is that there there are a lot of um, there are a lot of websites that are completely devoted to this, and can give you kind of and, and you know most of the time you have to I mean the way that I approach anything like this like let's say I was going to get back I'm I still roast coffee but let's say I was going to get back into being a real badass like how do you do it right so what you do is is you have to pick up the fundamental skill of weeding out the the chaff from the good information on a website. I'll give you a, a non-coffee example. So, like, I just responded to a, a, a text today, uh, not text, but a, a, an Instagram comment that was sent to, you know, sent DM, to me. DM, Dave. What? It's a DM. It's not a DM. It was a comment in the general thing. So get your terms straight before you, before you sass me. Anyway, uh, where they said it was a yet another person worried about when they're doing low temperature cooking, whether they should sear something before or after. The or is the important part here because they're like, I always thought you had to do it afterwards. And the correct answer is, is that there is no one choice. You can sear meat both before and after. The dichotomy is false. So you have to get kind of good at reading forums and experiments and finding there's typically one or two or three really good people in a scene who also, I don't know where the hell they get the time, but they have the time to post a lot of information about it. And you can kind of weed through that and see what is people just kind of harping on minute things that don't really make a difference and what are important. But I will share kind of the my old school, uh, like where I have been in coffee roasting. So I started doing air popcorn popper uh, stuff, which was the first imitation of the civet style uh, roast. If you're into that kind of like clean air taste, right? I then moved on to I think they were called harvest roasts, which were tailor-made uh, air popcorn poppers specifically for coffee. 
and I, they were fine, except for they're extremely loud, and two of them broke on me. I had two of them break on me in less than two years. Uh, so I kind of got off of that, um, went back to the air popper for a while, and then started reading a lot of info, a lot of stuff on drum roasting versus uh, air popping. And I got into the whirly pop. So then I started doing whirly pop roasts. Um, and I roasted Whirly Pop for a number of years, and I got tired of twisting the Whirly Pop. So I, uh, and by the way, like everyone, like most of your measurements, most of all of that measurement stuff is like the most helpful at the beginning. Like unless you're doing, I mean, this is why I'm ho- hopelessly behind in coffee roasting is that now people are following very kind of prescribed roast profiles, beginning, middle, end of roast, and how they're ramping up and ramping down. And for that, you always need good temperature. But when you're just starting, I think it's kind of very useful to like try to hit certain benchmarks, but then also to educate your senses, your ears, your eyes, your nose to what's going on, and then go back to the hyper control so you can kind of see what you're doing. So I controlled a whirly pop, I automated a whirly pop with a motor, and I finally threw away the whirly pop, and I built my version of a kind of stovetop uh, Burns sample roaster, which works great, uh, but it can really only do about a kilo. I have no experience with stuff larger than a kilo, except for if I was going to go anything over what I have now, you need very, very good extraction unless you're going to do it outside. Uh, what I have noticed is that I think, I forget which units do it, but some units now have the, uh, the catalytic burner. So that for those of you that never roasted coffee before, it makes an unbelievable amount of acrid smoke. Okay. Now that acrid smoke can be controlled by taking a, if you have the time and inclination, you can stand next to the mouth of the uh, roaster with a blowtorch and just shoot a blowtorch across the mouth of the roaster. And that high heat will consume the acrid smoke and you will get very little smoke coming out as long as you maintain that flame. There are people that put like a catalytic burner on the out on the on the outflow of gases on their roasters and burn off uh, all of that acrid kind of bluish uh, smoke as it comes out and so that is the real impediment I think to doing larger uh, roasts not just the power right because I can clearly do a lot more on my stove or if you built a propane burner uh, or something like that but uh, I'm sure someone in the chat room has more information on this and I and encourage them to uh, write it time to go. What? Well, so let me see what I didn't answer, and then I'll, I'll, I'll see what I didn't answer. Um, oh, Elliot wrote in about the uh, Still Spirits Turbo Air Still. Said, is there, if there's a show today, can Dave talk about this piece of uh, still equipment? It's cheap. I want to make absinthe at home with dried and fresh ingredients. Thanks. Okay, so uh, what the Turbo Still is, is it fundamentally is a, a, it takes a long time, but it does distillation. Instead of using a, a worm, with uh, water, right, to chill it off. It's just using a fan and forced air, which is a relatively inefficient way to cool off condensing vapors, which is why this thing distills at a relatively low rate. Uh, I'm sure you can distill something. If you're distilling an already distilled product and you're just trying to get flavors and aromas out, then I'm sure it's going to work fine. If you're trying to do actual distillation, which they encourage you to do, where you're taking like a like a, a fermented thing and trying to get a full thing off, they don't mention anything about removing heads and tails. It's kind of crazy, their instruction. They just say, uh, well, you, you distill it, then you mix it with water, then you put it through a charcoal filter, then you add flavoring. Now, 
This does not sound to me like a recipe for great spirits. Now, and the, the, the structure of every still, right, because it's not a column still, so you're not doing, like, hyper-purification, right? You're just, you're taking stuff off as it, as it comes. It doesn't have, I, I can't tell, I don't think, but I can't, it doesn't have, like, a lot of plates. It's not doing a lot of purification, right? So it's acting like... Uh, like the cheapest of all stills. So you're going to have to do like a lot of cuts and you're probably going to have to distill it a couple of times to get kind of the separation uh, that you want if you are distilling something that has impurities in it. If you are not distilling something that has impurities in it, then you can act more like I act with the rotary evaporator where we're trying to get total recapture. And if you're trying to get total recapture, which you're not going to do with an air-cooled system, but whatever, I'm not even going to get into that. But the point is, if you're trying to get total recapture and you're not worried about heads and tails and force shots and all of that kind of stuff, uh, then sure, give it a shot. It'll probably work. One note is I don't know what kind of safety mechanisms they have in, in it to prevent explosions, right? So alcohol vapor is one, invisible, and two, explosive. So this is why everyone seals up their uh, stills and make sure that the fire never comes in contact with the alcohol vapor. Now, you don't have a fire because it's electrical, but, like, I don't know, maybe you do this next to your stove. I don't know. Maybe you smoke. I don't know. I don't know what you do. I do not know your life. So just be careful. And I didn't see any real safety warnings about explosion hazards in, uh, in their instruction manual. So just be careful out there. Cooking issues. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 